0: God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, that's our topic. Our study has been this for a number of years. Spiritual warfare, as we got to chapter 10 of Second Corinthians, that began to be, these last four chapters began to be the focus of the Apostle Paul. Marking true and false is our subtitle. It has to do with true and false teachers as Paul is really addressing these kinds of things. Last time we laid the groundwork to the new uh, chapter, and so we're going to, we just introduced it, so we're going to get back to it now. I'd like you to look, if you would, in verse 1. We're going to pick up, I wish that, and we'll read through verse 4. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, verse 2, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and Purity of devotion to Christ verse 4 for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached or you have re- You receive a different spirit Which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted you bear this beautifully At Greg Tenhoff's book I told me so self-deception and the Christian life He writes this he says I'm a college professor I have been for almost a decade. I work reasonably hard at my job and I think I do it fairly well. In fact, my honest and solitary moments when there's no occasion for false humility, I'd say I'm better than average teacher. I'm in good company. A recent survey uh, revealed that 94 percent of the people who do what I do think they're doing it better than average and it's not just college professors. A survey of one million high school seniors found that 70% thought they were above average in leadership ability, and only 2% thought that they were below average. In terms of ability to get along with others, all students thought that they were above average. 60% thought that they were in the top 10%, and 25% thought they, they were in the top 1%. Clearly, a lot of people are wrong about how they stack up in comparison with their peers. Fortunately, he says, I'm not one of them, am I? Brent Hanson follows up with that, he wrote a book called The Truth About Us, The Very Good News About How Very Bad We Are. He says, researchers at the University of London concluded that a substantial majority of individuals believe themselves to be morally superior to the average person. And that this illusion of ours is uniquely strong and prevalent. They write, most people strongly believe that they are just, virtuous, and moral, yet regard the average person as distinctly less so. And among their study participants, virtually, he says, all individuals irrationally inflated their moral qualities and the absolute and relative magnitude of this irrationality was greater than that in the other domains of positive self-evaluation. So you can think great about yourself, you think you're good at all kinds of things, but when you talk about moral things, you think you're far superior. And we have a lot of self-delusions. Perhaps you've heard, he says, that 93% of us genuinely believe that we're above-average drivers, 93%. Perhaps you've seen studies that show we also think we're smarter than average and we're friendlier too. Plus, we're more ambitious than average. You might think with all this awesomeness, we would have an ego problem, but the good news is we also rate ourselves as more modest than other people. So yes, we're better at everything than anybody, but at least we're humble about it. And that's not surprising because we're us and, you know, we're cool like that, he says. But what? about people we assume simply must be less moral than us, like murderers and thieves and the like, surely they'd have a more reasonable assessment of themselves, right? Why no, actually, he says, the incarcerated population also thinks that they're more moral than everyone else. Prisoners find themselves to be kinder than the average person and more generous. The professor who conducted the study of prisoners wrote, quote, the results showcase how potent the self-enhancement motive is. It's very important, he says, for people to consider themselves good, valued, and esteemed no matter what objective circumstances might be, end quote. We're talking about deception, aren't we, and how widespread it is, and that's precisely what Paul is talking about. He's talking about deception, because some in the Corinthian church had been deceived by false teachers, but of course they didn't believe they were deceived. That's the whole point of deception. We're in the middle of a study through this last four chapters of 2 Corinthians dealing with spiritual warfare, in particular here. As we read a few moments, read a few moments ago in our passage, some in the church had been deceived, and in the church there were deceivers, false teachers, and Paul is having to deal with these things by helping the church recognize the deception and the deceivers. And it can be difficult for a number of reasons, as we saw just a moment ago, uh, without a biblical worldview, you and I would view ourselves uh, very, very morally morally would think that we're good people without a biblical worldview um, we would be deceived of course and it's difficult as well to identify deception because as we see we'll see in our passage for Paul says in verse 13 for such men who propose the deception that's going on in the church the false doctrine that people are buying into for such men are false apostles deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ verse 14 no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it's not surprising they can blend in Satan's good at it too. Therefore, verse 15, it it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So they fooled everyone except the one who isn't fooled. And so he evaluates what's going on and judges everybody rightly and that's not surprising to us. So there are false teachers and they teach what is false and we have to say that because um, I think it's, it's important that we point, we point it out because obviously people who have bought false teaching doctrine don't think it's false, and they don't think the false teacher is false. So we just say, okay, clearly this is what it is. And if the church can't recognize them, and we can't recognize false teaching, then we can't discern truth. And it's just very, very simple, and we can see how serious this becomes in just a very short distance. We saw last time that uh, current conventional evangelical wisdom says that every view has equal value if people are personally attached to them and hold them sincerely. And that was my test to you and to myself, of course, is how much has this whole thing bought in, have you bought in in your own thinking? And, and I think all of us can say at some point or another, we've wondered if perhaps they may be right because they hold it so sincerely and express it so vehemently. But that's the devil's lie, and it's the folly of believing that kind of thing that's been the destruction of churches all throughout the centuries past. And it's not popular to sort out true from false. But it's right, and it's necessary And this is why Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to pen this section of this letter. And so Paul points out the characteristics and the traits and the habits of true and false teachers. And then by those passages, the church in Corinth could know who to believe. And that comes right on down to us, of course. And we can learn uh, to recognize the false messengers and the true messengers and be able to understand that. So we reviewed our first group of traits last time. Paul illustrates by his own life what false messages and true messengers look like and his remarks concerning those who are deceiving the church and those who are true to the church. So we saw those before. We won't go through those again, except to say that the Corinthians should have been able to tell the difference, and that's pretty sad that they couldn't. But I think it's important to note that if the church pastored by the Apostle Paul had a hard time discerning between true and false teachers, then every other church that's followed, pastored by people who are much inferior to the Apostle Paul are going to have trouble too, which is why we're going to stay spend some time and teach through these difficult passages because they're important for us. And so um, the closer we get to Christ's return, I think, the more prevalent false teachers will be. I think you can even sense that now as people come up with all kinds of falsehood and people believe it. And so I think it's even more important for us to keep looking at these passages to give us direction and to give us, more importantly, discernment. And, and now a quick review from what we looked at last week in our new passage. We saw in verse 1, it really is basically an introductory verse. It says in verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. In other words, Paul is going to continue in the same vein he's been in it back in chapter 10, um, and he calls it foolishness. And he always has to call it foolishness when he has to defend his qualifications. And he's already been doing it, which is why he says, indeed, you are bearing with me. So I've already started doing this, and um, I'm going to keep So keep bearing with me. And he's going to keep going here then. And so whenever he draws attention to these kinds of things, he always calls this foolishness, or if insane, or I'm not speaking as the Lord would, but in foolishness. So he, he knows the Lord doesn't want people to boast, but he's going to have to do it. He doesn't want to brag. He knows he doesn't measure up as an under shepherd to the great shepherd. So there's never any illusion that there was something great about him. And there's no good thing inside of him. We understand that to be true from Paul too. Inside of him dwells no good thing that is, he said, in his flesh. So he knows that any good thing that happens is going to be the result of whom? Jesus. Jesus working through him is the only time anything good is going to happen. So anything good that happens in the church, you can thank Jesus for it because he's the one who's making it happen. And so he knows it's foolish to boast, and as I told you last time, it's an uneasy balance, of course, chasing down arrogant, negative people and defending yourself while they're trying to tear you down. You you don't want to get in some kind of uh, arrogant battle about who's better, because then you kind of fall into that whole study we just looked at. But because the church has been captivated and continues to be captivated by the cool and the hip and the flashy, he has to point out what's been going on and what should be going on, so he's forced to do what he regards as foolish. And so Paul says, then he reveals his own heart to them, and he says in verse 2, for I am jealous, he says, with, for you with a godly jealousy. And that was our next mark of a faithful teacher. We saw that last time. He's always worried about those under his care, and he wants to make sure that their relationship to the Lord is right. And he's grieved when it isn't. And that's the whole thing about being jealous with a godly jealousy. Literally, it's the jealousy of God that he has for the church. So this is righteous indignation. It's, it's righteousness, longing for God's vindication. And we looked at the fact that this is a major theme in the Old Testament, and we backed back that up with a bunch of passages we don't do again, but just simply that God is jealous of his own glory, he's jealous of his authority, he's jealous of his worship, he's jealous of his position, he's jealous of his obedience. Why is he jealous for those things? Well, because they belong to him. What he says is final. And, and to accept a substitute is to be disloyal to the God that is, the only one that is. And, and this is precisely what Paul is feeling. He's playing the, the pain of God's jealousy. Some of the church had been, uh, had been lured away with false teaching and lured away from sound teaching. And, of course, we're not living then as they should be in reflecting sound teaching. And this, this is the motivation behind a faithful teacher, a faithful ministry, is to make sure you're always addressing this. And we saw a number of examples, which we won't look at again. But Paul was deeply concerned about their testimony, about their relationship with God, about their Christian experience. That the church was compromising their testimony and their loyalty to being obedient. And, and God is so worthy of loyal, uh, loving obedience, isn't he? And so he was concerned about that. And he deserves to be loved with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's the first commandment. And as C.S. Lewis said, we know what it is and we need to be getting about it. So this is the most serious issue of life. To love The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and it's treated with such a cavalier attitude by false teachers. And then Paul says, second part of verse 2, For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And 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 that's the next mark of a faithful teacher. We saw that his ministry will be done with a future marriage in mind. And, And we saw Paul's intent appears to be, When I came to Corinth and I brought you the gospel, I betrothed you to Jesus. And you pledged your loyalty, because that's what it means when you say Jesus is Lord. You pledged your loyalty, your faithfulness to Jesus, and you pledged your obedience and you pledged your purity to Christ. and And now he says you've made this binding contract between you and the bridegroom, and the marriage hasn't happened yet; it's in the future. And my job, then, as I exercise my uh, my oversight in the church, he says, is to make you uh, seek to keep you pure till that event. And we saw that's exactly his intentional meaning from First Corinthians four fifteen when he says. For you were to have, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, all kinds of teachers coming along, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father, the gospel. In other words, Paul views his ministry in some respects as the father of the bride in Corinth. So you have only one father in the Lord, and that's me, and he sees his job, and, and every faithful pastor and every faithful leader who will see his job in some ways as wanting to get the bride of Christ to his presence pure. False teachers aren't like that, and we noted last time they typically promote and enshrine every kind of wickedness in the name of inclusivity. They put it all on pedestals to make sure they celebrate it, affirm it, and all that. That is not true teaching. When you see things the Bible strictly forbids and is very clear about, exalted, you know that's not being led, that, path, that, that flock is not being led by a true teacher. It's being led by a false prophet. So Paul's concern until then, then, is the church be pure. Uh, But there's a reason for a statement. Now look at verse 3. He's going to continue that whole bride and bridegroom thing. He says in verse 3, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And this is our next mark of a faithful teacher, if you're keeping track. It's number 13. Faithful ministers are motivated to teach the word because... Of what they fear that some of those in the church might be led astray, and they want to protect the church from that. They, they want to make sure that the church is not deceived, so the only way to make, that, make sure that that happens is to teach the word, and Paul well knows how susceptible and vulnerable people are to being led astray, and we just looked at a number of studies that confirm that teaching in the modern world, that people are very susceptible to being led astray, personally deceived about even their own self and their nature and reading the room about themselves. So we know that it continues. People are easily deceived, and Paul's concerned about that, and we know what that standard is, and so Paul's going to draw that attention, attention to that. He knows how susceptible and vulnerable the church can be uh, without biblical teaching, and and it, this is, and beloved, if you think about this and just apply this to now, the church is very susceptible and vulnerable to, to to uh, false teaching without solid doctrine and it's never clearer than when you see churches led by false teachers filled with people who are buying into the very thing the bible teaches the opposite and you're like well how could they possibly do that they are what they've been deceived and they're sitting there under teaching and if they just opened their bible in any number of places could see that the bible clearly teaches the opposite of what they're hearing and what they're affirming paul says i'm afraid you're going to be deceived just like Eve did. And if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that the Bible tells us that Eve was deceived. In other words, the Bible doesn't say that Eve knew she was sinning. Okay? The Bible doesn't say she was overtly and purposely rebelling against God. It doesn't say that. She was deceived, and the deception means, mark this, this is how deception works. She thought she was being given the right information and that up to now she had had the wrong information. That's what it means to be deceived. You, you thought when you hear this new thing, you think this is it, and now, oh, I've been wrong all along. And that's the deception, see. And I think it's important to, as a footnote before we move on from this that Paul expects the Corinthians to be acquainted with the Genesis record. And I thought that was interesting as I thought about that. Is he, he, didn't, he doesn't have to take time proving that this happened, that there were people named Adam and Eve and, and the, that was the first of the human race and all of that, although you'd have to make that case in many churches and schools today. And that Adam was made first, and then Eve was made as a helpmate for him. Just, I mean, this is the, this is the Genesis account. And, and there was such a woman and such a serpent, and that in Eden she was led into sin by the evil one. But, I mean, if you came and you, you teach that as common knowledge and established facts of origin... In many modern churches, you're left right out the door. And if you follow Answers in Genesis, you know he's in many churches where that is exactly the case. He has to make the case for the first Adam and Eve and, and Satan and, and, and young earth and all that kind of thing. Okay, he has to make that case. So this is not a stretch. Paul doesn't have to try to establish that as fact. Uh, he, he could use this as historical fact and as an example without having to defend its historicity. So he says... That she was deceived, and deception means that again she thought that she was being given the right information, and that up till now she had had the wrong information. And beloved, that is always the approach of false teachers. They come, and they cast truth as error, and they offer error as truth. And that's the way it always is. And. And that's why, at the end of verse 4, we see Paul isn't speaking in hypothesis. His fear is well-founded. Right at the end of verse 4, what's he say? Some in the church had been deceived, and he said, they bear this beautifully. So it's not like there was some question about whether or not they were deceived. They were. But Paul is continuing this bride illustration. Eve wasn't with Adam at the time of her deception. She was on her own, and she was vulnerable, just like the Corinthian church, who isn't listening to her bridegroom Jesus, and she's vulnerable, so, the false teachers come in like Satan of old, they kind of inject themselves and they have these new revelations and new insights and, and they 're much more open in their thinking and inclusive and uh, and Of course, we can really aspire uh, can we can we really aspire to know the mind of God and what he really intended with this passage he 's so far above us and uh, you know or Jesus told us this you know this is, this is from jesus this is how Jesus is or um Uh, This is what he intended, or God spoke to me and told me this. As I said to first service, anytime somebody comes up to me and says, God told me to tell you this, I get all kinds of red flags popping up and my hair on my neck starts standing up. Because how would it be possible for you to know that God actually spoke audibly into your ear and that wasn't actually your own wicked mind talking to yourself? There'd be no way for you to discern between the two. Because what we have is the written word of God. We know that's what it says. So if you want to say, I've read this passage in the word of God, and I want to share it with you, terrific. Please don't tell me that God told me to tell you something, okay? So, but this is what false teachers do. You know, God, this is what God revealed to me, see? Uh, un- unable to be substantiated, it's just kind of, just out there. I just got to take your word for it. And, and always, always, there's this new information that's going to make you wise, right? It's going to take you d- down the path of being more spiritual, it take you from some low-level sort of misinformation like Satan told Eve. You know, God didn't say you would die. He said you would be like him. Oh, all this time I thought it was something else. I'm wrong. I was wrong. See, that's, that's how deception works. And so, so um, you know, you've got to transcend this old-time antiquated doctrine that's so much, done so much damage to the church. You need to move on to this new thing that's going to be really helpful to the church. It's always how it is. That's how false teachers teach right now. Okay, I mean, you can go online, you can hear this almost that word for word. So I'm not kind of pulling things out of the air. So Paul expresses his fear and why he's committed to the word of God. And so he says, he says, I'm afraid that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And minds, that's the Greek now translated understanding or mental per- perception or thoughts or purposes of volition. It's part of your human ability to process things. It comes in and you're able to process and act on it. That's what Paul's talking about. So he, he said, I'm afraid you're going to get this into your mind, uh, what they're saying, and it's going to confuse you. And so Paul and the faithful under-shepherd will be committed to teaching the Word of God. Now, it's interesting um, how important this teaching of the Word of God is, and, and we can see Paul talk about it in a number of places. This is probably the best place, I think, to see how solemn and how important it is in 2 Timothy 4.1. So he's talking to his son in the face, Timothy, and he says um, in verse 1, I, now mark this, solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom now stop right there and here's the question i have for you is it possible for paul to pull anything else in there to make that more solemn and more important i mean those five things so i'm going to solemnly charge you timothy this is very important and very serious and it's just like we're right in the presence of god i'm doing it so i'm calling god as a witness in the presence of god and of Christ Jesus, so Jesus is there too, and he's listening to this whole thing I'm telling you and how important it is. And uh, who is going to judge the living and the dead? There's this date coming, the judging of the living and the dead. I'm pulling that in there too. That's how serious it is. And by his appearing, because he's going to come, and his kingdom, which is going to be established, by all of that, he's going to say something. And if there's something important he's going to say, it's going to follow up all those things to affirm how solemn it is. What's the first thing that he says? You can see it on here, is if I change the slide. It's this preach the word. Oh, you mean go to deacon's meetings? No. Oh, you mean visit everybody who's ever sick in the hospital anytime, any place, or knock on every door around their neighborhood? That's the most important thing? No. For the person who's leading the church, what's the most important thing? To preach the word. And then he's going to give some qualifications. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when you feel doing it when you don't when they're accepting what you're saying when they're not when it feel when you when you want to do it and when you don't want to do it up down all around doesn't matter this is the most important thing and i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of jesus christ and his appearing and the judgment day and everything else this is it preach the word be ready in season out of season and then in that ministry of the word what do you do rebuke reprove exhort with great patience and instruction what's your main job preach the word and do it over and 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 over it's the most important thing just keep saying those things and keep bringing it to the people whether you feel like it or you don't I think that's pretty important don't you if that's the main thing he told Timothy I mean there's a lot of things Timothy had to do but that's the main thing and and uh, why did he tell him to do that well he had told him just a few verses before in 2 Timothy 3:16. why is it important Well, all Scripture is inspired by God. What's that word inspired mean? It means you're standing in God's breath. That's actually the word, God's breath. When you teach the word of God, when you read the word of God, you're actually standing, as it were, in the very breath of God. As he's speaking, you're reading the word of God. It's as if he's speaking, and you're standing in it. And it's profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that word teaching is the word for doctrine. That's the word. Now, when you commit to it, then as the primary thing, and you know that you're standing in God's breath, then it shouldn't surprise you that it's powerful. Like we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit in both joints and marrow and able to discern and judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's how powerful it is it's able to discern the thoughts and intents of the men's and women's hearts and that's important particularly if you have thoughts and intents and speculations that don't line up with the Word of God it reveals those doesn't it I don't know what your thoughts and intents are any more than you know what mine are and I don't know what your position of your soul is before the Lord but the Bible will reveal that to you so why is it important to teach the word well because it's the very breath of God and it's the most important thing you can do as a minister and it's going to protect the church and keep her from being vulnerable and she'll have doctrine and she'll be able to discern. And all these things become, start piling up on top of this very important principle, which is to teach the word. Because it is powerful and it does the work that you need to have done. So when you see this and you understand you've been under this for a while and you've been under the clear teaching of the word of God, it's easy to pick up false teaching when you already know the truth. So somebody can say something and you say, no, that's, that's not true. But when you're wondering why all these people are sitting under these false teachers thinking they were deceived before but now they know the truth and you're wondering why they're there, here's the reason. See, the big problem is they've never had the Word of God taught to them so that they had correct doctrine. they never had established their own biblical reading. They haven't got into it so they can understand it for themselves and break the Word down and, and apply it to their lives. See, and when you don't have correct doctrine, then there's no way to have discernment. Doctrine is truth and truth is the criteria by which you discern. If you don't know the truth, then you can't discern, and if you can't discern, you get seduced. And if you get seduced, then you become unfaithful to Christ. So stay in the word and you'll have discernment that you'll need to identify error and false teaching and wrong thoughts and misplaced feelings and dis, you know, discernment is the thing. And you know, it affects all those things. Your feelings don't trump what the word of God says. You might have feel a certain way about what's going on in the church, but if the word of God says that that's not how it's supposed to be, then you've got to You've got to let your feelings go because that's holding on to falseness, you see? So these are just very, very important. Wrong thoughts, misplaced feelings, discernment's the thing. False teaching, it identifies where it is. So Paul's a truthful and faithful minister, so his job as an under-shepherd was to protect the church from that, and every true under-shepherd's job is to protect the church by discharging the Word of God, which is clear and the most important thing, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. In righteousness that you may be thoroughly furnished for every good work so if the minister doesn't do that then they haven't discharged their job as they should and beloved you don't have to look very far to see what passes off as biblical teaching is really just the thoughts of the person who's standing up here so as we saw you can't emphasize the teaching of the word enough considering the passage we've, we just read and yet what you see in pulpits around the world is the opposite of that. And We saw back in chapter 10, just for a moment, you hear all these people today talking about spiritual warfare because we're talking about spiritual warfare here. But when people talk about spiritual warfare, now they're talking about chasing demons around and trying to do things with demons in the supernatural realm of which, you know, that's beyond your comprehension and mind and bra- blaming demons for directly influencing everything. We see that all the time. I hear that a lot. You know, I think I'm really under spiritual persecution from a demon. Maybe. Could be just... Your appetite and your flesh that haven't been crucified yet could be, you know, you haven't moved along in maturity to put them away. You know, Satan's really buffeting me. Ah, I think Satan has some more things to do besides just bug you. Okay? So remember, beloved, you know, it's not always demons chasing you around, okay? A lot of times it's you doing it. In fact, I would say most of the time it's you doing it. They don't have to do anything, all right? You're, you're already not in the Word. Uh, you're not walking closely with the Lord. You're going to have plenty of fun on your own. Okay, so they don't have to do a whole lot to bring you uh, in the direction they want to bring you, all right? So, but but people when they talk about spiritual warfare, they're always talking about demons. That's that's not what Paul's talking about at all. In fact, in Second Corinthians ten three, remember he says when he starts to to open up this whole idea about spiritual warfare and that he's going to kind of wade into the church and he's going to identify false teachers and false people who are believing falseness, he's going to fix this. He's not content with the church to be flopped around back and forth, every wind of doctrine, always struggling, always trying to recover. He's not content with any of that. So in in verse three, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. I'm still in the flesh, Paul says, but I'm not going to war here with fleshly tools. I'm not matching wits with you. I'm not trying to reason you out of it. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses what is that weapon we saw that as you're equipped in Ephesians chapter 6 what's the one offensive weapon that you have you have the sword of the spirit which is the word of God so it's divinely powerful and we just saw how powerful it is discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart and dividing the soul and the spirit and joints and marrow so we're destroying market here's what here's what uh, spiritual warfare is speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ that's the danger the thoughts see and speculations is the, is the Greek word legismos that is ideologies and theologies and theories and religions and ideas and viewpoints and philosophies and psychologies and whatever you know material things you know it's a, it's a spiritual war is a destruction of ideologies and ideas And concepts. See, that's precisely what Paul's talking about in in our passage, isn't it? That they've been led astray, of course, by ideas, of course, by concepts. We're going to see exactly what was taught here in just a minute. But every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought, here it is, captive the, to the obedience of Christ. You don't have to be thrown around by every thought that you have in your life. Do you understand that? You used to serve one master, and you were in that field, and he could tell you to do whatever you want, he wanted you to do, and you had to do it. And you had no choice because you were, you were unredeemed, and your body and your spirit were in perfect harmony with doing wickedness. And you couldn't do goodness even if you wanted to. And then you were redeemed, and now you're working in this field, and so this master's hollering over the fence and saying, do this and that and that. Do you have to do that? No, because you have a new master. But is it, still, is it still very hard? Sure. You have some baggage. And so you're like, you're going to the Lord. Lord, this, these thoughts don't line up with truth, so I'm not going to act like this, and I'm not going to do this, and I need you to help me, strengthen me through your word, and do battle with it with memorizing passages of Scripture, and you begin to have victory. See how that works? So you're taking captive every thought into the obedience of Christ you start going down one line of of thinking you realize this is gonna lead you to a place that you're disobedient to the Lord say no you short-circuit that I'm not going that way I'm gonna do battle with that I'm gonna use the Word of God we're wise enough to do that and you have the Holy Spirit in you now bringing that to your attention so the idea is any anti-God idea, any anti-who-you-are-truth idea, any, any satanic lie, any doctrine of a demon, anything raised up against the knowledge of God. So we take it and we, and we throw it down and we bring every thought captive to Christ. And the Lord does that through his word as you're faithful to understand what it is and give it out when you have that opportunity. Because isn't that what Satan did to Eve? He proposed to her that the truth she knew was actually a falsehood. Did he not do that? So there's a thought put into her mind, he proposed it to her verbally, and he gave her an alternative, and that seemed right to her, and that's that's combated, see, by a faithful teacher, by the teaching of truth. Singular biblical truth. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply? Which means, beloved, that there is a singular way to understand passages. Whatever it meant to the original reader exactly is what it still means now. It's, it's not like, optional. The Lord's not waiting for you to decide what you're going to do about a certain doctrine you see in Scripture whether you believe it or not. It is particularly true or false depending on what the passage says. It's not like, well, we could interpret that a bunch of different ways. No, there's only one way it's interpreted, and however ever it was received by the original reader, that's how it's still received now. Whether that agrees with how you, your philosophy of life and how you've lived your life up until now is irrelevant. Well, it means to me this. Well, how about this? What if you never lived? What would it mean then? Because whatever it still, whatever it meant without you living, that's what it still means. Okay? So this is really, really important stuff. And not difficult, really. Singular biblical truth. Because beloved falsehood doesn't become the new truth because lots of people hold it sincerely. Okay? And I I know you know that, but we just have to say that. So the pure, virtuous church, betrothed to Christ, must not be seduced into a violation of the love for Christ. Expressed in sincere, devoted obedience to doing what he says. So what Paul's afraid of when he comes to the church of verse three, he says this. He says, He says, I'm afraid that your minds will be led astray from what? And this is so cool. The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I love that. That that is when I read that this week, so that it's so winsome to read that. Paul expresses the Christian life in very simple terms here. I want you to think about it. This is really it. The Christian life is, according to the Apostle Paul, loving Jesus Christ only and supremely as Savior and Lord. You catch it? The Christian life is very simple. Loving Jesus Christ only and supremely as Savior and Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, they asked Jesus that very thing, and he was polite enough to answer. In, July, in John chapter 14, verse 15, here's what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll just say it a different way in case that didn't make sense to you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, verse 21, is the one who loves me. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Very simple love of Christ is what? Obeying what he says. So you have to know what that is. And if you have my commandments and you keep them, that's the one who loves me. Very, very simple. You can say you love Jesus all you want, but if you don't do what he says, you don't. Okay? But if you do what he says, see, he who loves me will be loved by my father. So this great back ripple off of this, you're loving Jesus and you're doing what he says and you're going to be loved by the father too because you're following the son. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. So you're going to grow. As you begin to read the word and you do what it says and you're obedient, you're going to start growing in your spiritual walk. You'll become more able to do discerning and be able to help other people, those kinds of things. The Lord enriches that because you're obeying the simple things. Okay, I know they're going to manage these simple commands. They know what I'm supposed to do, and so I'm going to give them some other things to do. So this is how that works. Now, and this is really cool. just, Just in case you wanted an example of what that looks like, in verse 31, Jesus gives it. He says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. What does he do? I do what he says. That makes sense, right? I mean, if, if we express our love to Jesus by doing what he says, and then Jesus says, to show the world that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So we get that example. And Jesus said that as he went through his life, he always did what the Father said. And that made a very clear understanding that he loves a father. See, when your children do what, what you ask them to do, they express, even without saying they love you, that they love you. Because you love them and you ha- want their best for them and you're going to guide them in the best way you can and when they obey you and they do what you say and they buy into it. So when they give you some instruction, they buy into it. They're showing that they love you. So very clear. And I, j- I just think that there's a simplicity about all that, isn't there? Just a, a winsome kind of big breath and just kind of throw off all the all the other stuff. Like simple, it's simple church like we talk about around here. It's, re- it's really not that complex, is it? I- it's It's an uncluttered devotion. Just do what he says. It's not legalism. It's not trying to act a certain way in front of people. Just be sincere about your relationship to Jesus, which just means as you understand what he says, you start doing it. It's just uncluttered types of relationships, that's just beautiful. But that's not where some in the Corinthian church are right now, so look at verse 4. He says that. It's just so marvelous. I just love that, and I love that this week. Verse 4, he says, but for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached. So now we're talking about actual doctrine that's going on in the church and they're vulnerable because they're not obeying Christ and so they're going to be open to these kinds of suggestions like Eve was which is why Paul said what he said in verse 3 for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom you've not preached or you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And before we get into this passage, the question isn't really if, is it? I mean, it is if for us, certainly. So for the future church, it's important as a prophylactic to just say, you know, if you, if you, if you, because it could be that um, you will not. You'll see that it's false. And that's what we hope. As we teach the Word of God faithfully, you'll see things that are false. But here, one had come, right? More than one had come. So he's not talking about a hypothetical situation with the church where he is. This is the reality. And, of course, it's, it's the reality of a lot of churches now. But some in the Corinthian church had listened and been deceived. So the thing he feared had actually happened because he says, you bear it beautifully. So let's look at what they taught. What's the doctrine? And we'll just kind of take a uh, and get an nice understanding of it. So verse 4 says, if one comes, and here it is, preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. So they taught about Jesus. That's not unusual for false teachers to do that wasn't the simple devotion of obedience to his word that we just saw, because that's precisely what Paul said they weren't doing. It moved you away from the simple devotion and obedience to Christ. So can't be that. So it's another Jesus, and Paul doesn't say exactly what the problem was. We know that there were multiple problems in the church. He doesn't identify all the false doctrine, and we said that it doesn't really matter, does it? Because Satan and demons and their doctrine, they don't care what you believe as long as you ignore the singular truth of the true Jesus. So whatever your flavor is, they're okay with that. So the idea, it could be another Jesus that isn't concerned about sin. It could be another Jesus that isn't concerned about a pure bride. To use an example we just saw a minute ago, he wants to make sure they're delivered as a pure bride. Uh, it could be another Jesus whose interest is making you wealthy and healthy and um, prosperous, or whatever, if we move it into a modern vernacular. So we don't know exactly what the problems were, but we don't have to look very far to see a different Jesus. If we know the standard of simplicity and devotion to Christ looks like, we know what that looks like and we don't have to look very far to see Jesus encumbered by a whole bunch of other stuff. So they came to the Corinthian church from the outside. These are the false teachers. Just like Satan came into the garden from the outside, the paradise of God, and, and, and just like the suitor, if we think about our illustration from last week, just like the, the suitor comes in from the outside and destroys the engagement between two people, just like that, so they, they came in, they exalted speech, we know that, they loved great oratory, they were captivated by Greek philosophy and culture, we know that, they claimed to be apostles of Christ, Paul says later they're false apostles, they claim to be representatives of the Jerusalem church, and they said that Paul was a fraud, we, all know, we know all that, we looked at it, and they identified somehow with Jesus, the name of Jesus certainly, but it was a different Jesus. Now look at the next part, so he says, for if one comes, and they did, and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, and here it is, or you receive a different spirit which we, you have not received. Now, what's that mean? Well, what spirit had they received when they believed? The Holy Spirit, right. And, and uh, what spirit did you receive when you believed? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so we can establish that that's what was received, salvation, and, and at the time a person believes, they receive the Holy Spirit. And we've looked at all of that from many other studies, and I've made sure that you know all of that, nuances of that, because that's where a lot of deception occurs in many churches and false doctrine. But it, basically it's this, and we've looked at all this. Everything that the Lord has for you in relation to the Holy Spirit is given to you at the moment you believe. That's the, that's the sum of it. There's no other part that's coming, no second gift of the Holy Spirit. No, That's all false, okay? So everything that came, that the Lord had for you in relation to the Holy Spirit was given to you at the moment of salvation. And that is precisely what Paul is indicating here. So they believed and the Holy Spirit was given to them, but they've received something else now. Um, but they received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. But the false apostles came with a different spirit. That's the whole point of this phrase here. So because, and here's the danger, when the Corinthians received those preachers and mark it, they're, they're teaching another Jesus. They're not getting that from the Holy Spirit, are they? If they're teaching a false Jesus, then they're obviously not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's just obvious, uh, whose presence was already in their lives. If they're believing a false Jesus, they're not being led along by the Holy Spirit. They've, they've created a callous there, or they've, they've quenched the Spirit in their life, and they're not listening to the Holy Spirit saying no, no, no. Or they haven't studied doctrine enough to know it should be no. So they're not getting that from the Holy Spirit whose presence was there? So they're receiving a different spirit. Well, what spirit? Well, false teachers come from where? Satan. Now, look, in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and this is going to illustrate this very well. If you look at the language, it's very, very interesting. It just kind of pulls you right in. So in verse 1, it says this. Paul says to Timothy, but the spirit, what spirit? The Holy Spirit, so we know who's talking, explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. So the Holy Spirit is warning believers that some are going to fall away, Okay? Why? Mark it. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So not the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, but deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And how will they hear about it? Verse 2. By means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So who's he talking about? False teachers. He just uses a different way to express it. He just calls them deceitful liars, hypocritical, and their own conscience is seared. And what are some of the things the false teachers are going to say? Look at verse 3. Men who forbid marriage. So there's always that going on. You should just remain single, don't get married, that kind of thing. You know, that's, that's not gonna, it's not going to take you the right way. The Lord's advocated marriage for most people. Abstain from certain foods. We see that all the time. You'd have to look very far online I find some preacher telling you that this certain diet is the godly diet. You should, absorb, you should uh, you know, make sure you don't take in these other things because... You know, this is not godly, and this is not what they did all through the scriptures. So these are just two of the things. It's not, a, it's not an exhaustive list, but you can recognize them, Paul says, you know, if, if they're saying that. Obviously, that's what was going on in Ephesus, so he brings those two out. There's other passages in the scripture that show us other things that false teachers say. We won't go through those. But men who forbid marriage ab, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created grateful, to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. That's important, right? Again... If you believe and know the truth, and you're not encumbered by these kinds of things. Four, verse four, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be re- rejected it if it's received with gratitude, for it's sanctified by means of the Word of God and of prayer. So you know that it's true by the Word of God, and it's okay. And then you pray, and you receive it. And you're grateful, and God's well pleased. And you don't have to worry about encumbering yourself with all kinds of legalism, because that's not what simplicity to Christ looks like. Okay, now, verse six. Tells Timothy and pointing out these things to the brethren what things uh, well the spirit says that there's gonna be deceiving spirits coming and they're gonna say some certain things and they'll be carried by false teachers be aware okay so pointing out these things to the brethren you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following that sounds familiar, right? I mean, what the Word of God says, what it means by what it says, and how does that apply, you know what that is, and you've been nurtured on that, so you're able to identify these kinds of things. It's just very, very straightforward. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, disciple yourselves for purposes of godliness. Don't get drawn into all the worldly arguments, all the conspiracy theories, beloved. I mean, come on. I mean, if it means anything, it means that, okay? You, you get pulled away from the main things when you get pulled up with that, and you get caught up with affairs of the world, and you're worried about the affairs of the world instead of truth and what the scripture wants you to do and how you're supposed to discharge uh, the course of your life. So listen, these, these are important things, and he tells Timothy, be aware they're going to come from deceitful spirits, and you're going to find plenty of people online who claim to be Christians. They're full of conspiracy theories, and all they do is just shove that down your throat. And Paul says, absolve yourself of all of that. Hang on to true doctrine. You know what's the main things. Keep those the main things. So the simplicity of the love of Jesus, which is found in pursuing his commands and doing them. Okay? So with false teachers, it's always a new revelation. You know, it's some new nuance. You know, some new understanding, some elevated knowledge that they have. So it makes you think that I didn't really know, and now I'm going to get the truth. You know, some display of gifts that the Lord has said have come to an end, some great power of miracle working. Beloved, this happens all the time. You know, oh, it's great power and might. The Lord's at work in a mighty way in our church. Really? I mean, I I think he said what the things were most important, right? What things are going to remain. So, beloved, remember, this happens all the time. It's always something like this. It's always God told me this. This is what's going on here, right? I mean, God does what he wants. If I've heard that, I've heard that a dozen times. God does what he wants. As if that's some kind of panacea that, you know, whatever the Scripture uh, doesn't specifically say, you know, God can do, right? I mean, Anyway, there's no end to illustrations like that, and I, won't, I don't want to bog us down and all of that, but some great miracle power, you know, working. And, and, and when that's going on, and, and, and a lot of times people will come here, and then they'll want a meeting with me, and, and they'll say this. And there's a lot of disillusionment in many of those movements, and they'll say this. They'll say, if, if what they're doing isn't what the Bible says we are to be doing, and here, here's the rub right here, then how are they doing it? How are they doing that kind of thing if the Bible says we're not supposed to do it? And, of course, my answer is, I'm not sure you want to hear this answer, but I'm going to give it to you, and I'm glad that you asked the question because the Bible is very clear about it. And, of course, it takes in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 7, which we just looked at. But, but the idea is, they, I always say this, with a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit. We know that in the end times, deceiving spirits are going to come, and doctrines of demons. And it's communicated to the church by hypocrites and liars that are filled with all kinds of wickedness, and their own conscience is seared. Not my words, but that's how they lead the church. See, and then there's all kinds of disillusionment. Why can't I do what you're doing? Well, you must not be spiritual enough. Why isn't my church? Why aren't you? You know, why isn't my church doing it? Well, you must not be filled by the Holy Spirit. You didn't get the second work. What second work? Did I miss out on something? I, I guess I don't know all of this. Now, tell me. Right. My comment back is, if these are all active, why aren't you going to hospitals and healing everybody in them? Are you going to a town in, in, uh, in India? Are you healing everybody? How about people who are starving? Why don't you go there with a basket and ask the Lord to fill it from heaven and you can just feed everybody who's around you? Listen, sign gifts were given to verify the speaker or the message. And when it was established that Christ was actually at work and his church was established, he gave us his word, and now we have it, don't we? And we don't have to have those anymore, and Scripture's clear about that, that they were going to pass away, and they did, with very few exceptions, with false teachers who came along a couple of different times throughout the course of 2,000 years. So history proves it out, but here's the thing. It's always like, well, God could do what he wants, and he's doing that here. Well, I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't think you understand. This is not the Holy Spirit doing this because he says he's not going to. These are other spirits doing this, beloved. And and these are ancient spirits who were created during the rest of the time that when the universe was created. And, and back to our passage, and this is really scary, this is important, these spirits have been around a long time and whose intelligences are far beyond ours and they have rebelled against the sovereignty of God and they have been deceiving men and women for a long time and they can't tell the future and they can't read your thoughts but they've been around 6,000 years around men and they have a pretty good idea what your inclination is going to be so it's not really hard for them to deceive you. Because people don't change. And they're attracted by the same kinds of things. Lust of the flesh. Let's see the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So, it's not the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, it's other spirits, and they do wicked things, and they're pretty good at it, and they can, they can verify that there's some power there, kind of it's going to look like something's going on, and there is something going on, and it's otherworldly, but it's not of the Lord. And they can make it look authentic, and they can make it look spiritual, and they can make it look powerful. And so it's very convincing and very seductive, and false teachers teach a different Christ, and the power comes from a different spirit. And then this last part, and a different gospel which you have not accepted. What one did they accept? Well, by grace through faith, right? And we looked at the true gospel on Easter Sunday morning. What's the different gospel? Well, again, the Apostle Paul doesn't say. But we can take our cues from other passages, like Romans 6.1, if it's a different gospel, Paul talks about it in Romans 6, one. He says to the church in Rome, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? What was being said? Well, it's just God doesn't really care about holiness. I mean, the more you sin, the more grace abounds. So isn't that good? Right? Or, you know, just go ahead and do what you're going to do because you can just ask for forgiveness later. People say that a lot, beloved. I, I mean, it, okay, whatever. Just do it. Just ask for forgiveness afterwards. And sometimes we operate in our own life if we're not walking closely with Christ that very way. Even though we don't express it, we just go ahead and do the sin that plagues us and because we know we're just going to come back at the end we're just going to say, please forgive me. That's not how we're supposed to live, obviously. So that different gospel certainly could be, or how about Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, where we see the same language. And it's pretty cool. He says this. He says, I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for, here it is, a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some, who market are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Who are those people? False teachers. Still they still work their way in. So we know here this is a different gospel. Um, it wasn't salvation by grace through faith alone. What did you have to add to it? If you know the Galatian church, you had to add what? Works to it. You had to start doing things the Jews used to do. And of course, Paul brought them to task on that. There's really only two religious forms in the whole world: it's the gospel of grace. And then every other one where somehow you cooperate with God to earn your own way to heaven. And that's how you witness to Catholics and others. So how in the world do you cooperate with God to win, your way, win the way to heaven if Christ had to die on the cross? And they, so it makes for good conversation. But there's only two ways uh, that, t- that religion is expressed. One by grace through faith. The other one it has to be something you're doing. And so that's what the Galatian church is being brought to task on. A- and in Revelation 2 and 3, and many of you are going through that right now so you know, you have the Asia Minor churches. And these are real churches. They were founded by the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and, and they are also representative churches of all the churches in the church age. So a cross-section of every church can be found in these seven churches. Some uh, things that you see there, you'll see in churches uh, throughout the world. And so and they're representative of every church that's ever existed and will exist until the Lord comes. But by the time, and here it is, by the time of John's penning of Revelation around AD 90, five of the seven churches are basically in the same boat as Corinth. They have either a different Jesus, a different spirit, or a different gospel at work in the church, and so Jesus, through John's tutor, has to address those things and say, "Straighten up and fix it." So, it's not—it's not unusual, not isolated. It. It's certainly going to continue to go on. Galatians one eight, but even if we, Paul says, or an angel from heaven, if it were, should preach you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be what. A curse. Cast away. And, and Paul is clear that the gospel isn't negotiable. In Galatians one eleven, he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man, for I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And what was it, beloved? And you were with us on Easter, you know, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received which he just said he got it from Jesus and what was it that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures that's the gospel and every, everything that is connected with that which we went through on Easter Sunday so he says to the Galatians I'm amazed that you're already lured away to a different gospel by people who are telling you things and you're thinking oh I didn't know this well great I'll just go ahead and buy that in and and uh, it's not another gospel there is no other gospel, and this gospel you're buying isn't good news. It's bad news, and Paul pronounces a curse on anybody who touches the purity of the gospel. So wrap up for today because we're out of time. I had a few other things for you, but we're just going gonna to close. Paul says to these people, he says, look, he says, these guys come, and they preach another Jesus, and they come in the power of a different spirit, and they're developing a different gospel at the end of verse 4, And and what a sad commentary! And you bear this beautifully. So his fear is legitimate. People have been deceived, and they should have rejected it. They should have tossed all of that out, including the people who were doing it. But what probably happened was, and we see this all the time uh, today. So it's not surprising. Maybe somebody gave an impassioned, sincere message about it. You know, let's just be one. Let's listen to them. You know, let's have unity. You know, just, just love everybody. You know, love is love. You know, and we can't possibly know what God really thinks about all this anyway. We don't want to make a mistake on this and just offend a bunch of people and, and the church hurt everybody's feelings. You know, and God knows our heart. You know, that kind of, those kind of platitudes, we hear that all the time from false teachers. God knows our heart. Yes, he does. I don't think you want to know what he says, thinks about it either. You know, at, um, we have a passion for the church. We have a vision for the church, well, how about we just use the one that we have? Uh, you know, and that pulled some of them in. That still pulls people in now, see? And here it is. It's because of a lack of discernment, deceived by deceivers, and self-deceived. Lack of a basic knowledge of the basic truths of the Word of God, and that's, that's why faithful teachers are going to do that. to make sure you have doctrine, and you to do it patiently teaching over and over and over and over and over and over again. So we have it in our mind. We can identify what's false. Because I think it's a lot like, and we'll just close with this. I love this this illustration. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people, the Lord says to Hosea, are destroyed by lack of knowledge. And, and why, why don't they have knowledge? Because they don't know what, what my word is. So they're, they're carried away. And then look at this. Because you've rejected knowledge, I'll also reject you from bringing my priests. So who's he talking to? People who are leading the people. They'd rejected the word of God and given them their own word. They ran, and I didn't send them. Remember, we looked at that last time? They spoke, but I didn't, they didn't speak for my, on my account. So that you don't have knowledge, and my people are destroyed because you don't. And Since you've forgotten the law of your God, I'll also forget your children. And so what happens, beloved, when you get, you get caught up in foolishness, you get caught up in falsehood, and then you're drawn away from the simplicity of love, of obedience to Christ, what happens to your children? We see this happen over and over in the church. beloved. People are deceived by their own lust, ca- called away by their own desires, not following what the Word of God says, just thinking, well, I can just ask forgiveness later. And then the children watch all of that, and children are quick to pick up on, on double-mindedness, on falsehood. Church isn't important to you. If holiness isn't important to you, don't imagine it's going to be important to your kids, okay? Because they are going to see this foolishness going on in your life. You don't live like that all the time. They know. Just be sincere. And um, don't perish from lack of knowledge. You have the Word of God sitting right in front of you. The same one I have. You can read it. You can know what it says. And you can do it. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Lord, I thank you today for an opportunity to be together with us, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and break a word open and just read it together and, and understand what it says and so um, so simple, so uncluttered, not with a lot of things added on to it, just simplicity of, of response and obedience and then giving our lives away in the great commandment and great commission. We're doing that, Father, we're well-pleasing to you as much as we do that. So, Lord, I pray you'll help us be that kind of church and, and individually those kinds of people. Thank you for our teens that went out to witness. I pray, Lord, as, as uh, they continue to do that, that uh, those who are coming now for the first or second time will begin to open their mouth and speak the word and not be afraid and not be ashamed. The truth is there. There's no way that you're going to be able to wield that truth, though, if you're afraid to even mention the name of Christ in the community. So, Father, I pray you'll empower us, all of us, adults too, to be faithful witnesses of the gospel and the joy that we have and we found in salvation. And, Father, I pray that um, as we go out this uh, this week, we'll be found to be faithful people. People can watch our testimony, they can hear our testimony, and know that Christ really is alive and well and working in the church. And I pray this name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.